0: So, this week we're going to be taking a little bit of a break uh, from Matthew and we're going to dive into the latter part of chapter 1 of Philippians, specifically verses 27 through 30. Now, for all of you youth groupers, that might sound familiar because that's where we were last week. Um, but for you youth groupers and for all the rest of us, this is going to be more like a, let's uh, say for you movie buffs, like an extended cut version of that lesson with some bonus scenes in it so as we've been moving through uh, Matthew's gospel account the disciples are now being briefed on their upcoming mission to declare that the kingdom of heaven is at hand the Lord Jesus is commissioning the disciples who are now apostles they're being sent out they're going on a mission where they're actually going to experience now some opposition Jesus tells them and gives them fair warning that they're going to encounter households that are not going to receive their message. And he tells them, shake the dust off your feet when you leave there, that town or that house. So just as we see Jesus giving his disciples marching orders for their mission to the lost sheep of Israel in Matthew, we're going to look at Paul here giving marching orders to the Philippian people, giving them orders to strive together together. For the gospel. Now, throughout the first chapter, Paul greets the people at Philippi like he typically would in a letter. Uh, he greets them, he thanks them for their partnership in the gospel, he tells them how much affection he has for them. They have a rich history together. And then he details how, as he moves on, about how his current imprisonment, which he's in prison at this time of the writing of this letter, he details how the current imprisonment has actually been a fruitful event. That's happened. It's spreading the gospel. He doesn't want the people to be in despair about their circumstances or about his circumstances. He wants them to rejoice just like he's rejoicing that the gospel's being sent out. In fact, he tells him it's being spread throughout the whole imperial guard where he's at. And so the funny thing about this situation is that even though Paul's the prisoner here, he kind of is the one that has a captive audience. Like he's got these guards that are with him all day long. They're kind of taking their shifts. They're spending time with him. And he's got a captive audience to spread the gospel. These guys have to stand there for however long their shift was and listen to this old guy go on about this Jesus character. It's kind of like when you're in an elevator with somebody, maybe that you don't know. It's kind of like until that elevator hits the floor you're going to, and you're stuck with that person. You're going to to hear all about it if they're one to talk. But as we learn later in the letter, as Paul tells them to rejoice about this, he says some are coming to Christ for salvation because of his imprisonment, because of Paul's witnessing. If we look ahead to chapter 4 and verses 21 to 22, Paul says, the brothers who are with me greet you. He's kind of signing off here. He says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So the gospel is really expanding even into Caesar's household. So Paul's telling the people to rejoice about that. Don't despair about his circumstances. And so just prior to our passage today, Paul declares his great confidence as he moves on in chapter 1. He declares his great confidence that he is going to be delivered one way or the other. He is convinced that he physically is going to be delivered from prison. So he thinks that he's going to continue going on serving the Philippian people, bearing fruit for them. But he leaves the door open for the possibility that he might have his ultimate final deliverance too. He's leaving the the possibility open that he might be put to death. He might be sentenced to death. And then in a sense have his final deliverance, to go be with the Lord. And he goes on to powerfully say, to live is Christ Christ, and to die is gain. He understands that if he stays, he's still going to have fruitful ministry. The Lord still has a mission for him. But if he goes, hey, it's all good. I'll be with the Lord. So he's quite torn between the two options. And it's an amazing perspective, really. It's one that the world really is not going to understand until they come to Christ, it's only this perspective a believer can have, and we as Christians, we don't fear death because we know what's coming on the other side of it. And so, if you are here visiting this morning and you don't have that assurance, if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, hang around with us this morning. I'm going to share the gospel with you this morning, but we'd love we would love to chat with you. Uh, we want We want you to have the hope that we have. Um, We have this great hope for all of eternity, and we want you to have it too. So that brings us to chapter 1, of Philippians. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, the word should be on the screen too. We're looking at verses 27 through 30. And I would like to have your help reading this morning, if that's okay. Uh, If you as a group would read verses 28 and 30, I'll read verses 27 and 29. So here we go, verse 27. You guys are excited this morning. (laughs) You can keep going if you want, but I'll go ahead and read 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. All right. Amen. Thank you. So this brings us to our first point today. We are to live as citizens of heaven, citizens of heaven. So let's look at verse 27. Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, the original word for that phrase manner of life, and you might even see this footnote in your Bible if you have it open, this can also be translated or live as a citizen of. So manner of life or live as a citizen of. So Paul's affirming for the believers that they are now citizens of heaven, of a new community. And he states later in chapter 3, very specifically, in verse 20, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're looking at the same concept here, in chapter 1. And just as you know, we're citizens of the United States, we have rights and responsibilities that go along with that. You know, If you look at the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment, And I I wanted to point this out because this is interesting in, in the scope of where we've been at in recent history. It says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And it goes on to say at the end, or the right of the people to peaceably assemble. We also have the right to bear arms and so on but we have responsibilities too as citizens, right? We pay taxes, we obey the law of the land. Um, As long as it accords with God's law, we obey the law of the land. So you can't vandalize other people's property, you can't take their stuff, you can't hurt anybody physically. So this is the manner of life that we live as U.S. citizens. So Paul now tells the Philippians that they are to live a manner of life now that's worthy of their citizenship in heaven. So what does that look like? He tells them to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So from this statement, and we're actually going to look ahead to chapter 2 also, Paul says that one of the defining characteristics of a citizen of heaven or the citizens of heaven is unity. Unity is absolutely critical for the Lord's church. It's a huge deal. So let's look at what Paul has to say about this. And this should be up on the screen there. And we're going to look at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 here. So in verse 27 of chapter 1, he says, Stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, side by side. And if we look ahead to chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, the same love, being in full accord And of one mind. So seven times there. In the span of just a few verses. The Holy Spirit is kind of pulling out his jackhammer here. And telling us. This is really important. That you be together. Striving side by side. And we also see it when Jesus prays. For all believers in the book of John. He prays that all believers would be one. Just as he and the Father are one. So clearly. This is an extremely important part of our heavenly citizenship, the manner of life we're now to live. So the question comes, how do we live in unity? Now this could be a whole sermon series in and of itself. So we're going to look at this real quickly. But to boil it down, we live in unity by following the example of Christ. We humble ourselves toward each other. And as we look in chapter 2, of Philippians verses three through five, he says, "Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. But don't you love being around people who are really good listeners? Do you enjoy that when you're talking to somebody and you get a sense that, wow, they're not really that worried about what they're going to respond back to me. They're actually like taking in what I'm saying and they're listening because they care about what I think, you know, what I'm feeling, what's going on in my life. It makes all the difference. Now, of course, we're always kind of formulating our thoughts in our head, but when you meet a, a really good, true listener, it makes all the difference in communication and in a relationship. But when we get stuck in a mode of selfishness, what ends up happening? We end up treating people like objects. That's what happens. We treat people like objects. We only look at other people in regards to what we can get out of them. And, you know, we used to do we used to do yard work for a gentleman in this really nice addition. Um, we we took care of the whole addition, but this one guy in particular, he'd always be outside, you know, doing whatever, piddling around, and um, And, man, when when he needed something done, he was the nicest guy in the world. Boy, I'll tell you, he was, hey, how you doing? How's the kids How's the family? Would you be able to come trim our shrubs real quick? But if we were there and he didn't need anything and we'd pass by him, boy, it was almost like we didn't exist. So, you know, this is kind of that self-centeredness that I think is a good picture here. You know, that's a business relationship, so you kind of get it. But at the same time, we're people, you know. We're we're, we're to love each other. You know, it's almost kind of like in regards to humility, you think of uh, someone who says or kind of jokes, well, I'm the most humble person in the world. I don't know anybody that's more humble than I am. Selfishness creates the exact opposite scenario that Paul's talking about here in regards to unity. Things get said like, I only have so much time. I need to go after what I want. I'm not sure about us anymore or our relationship. We see that selfishness leads to isolation and arrogance and ultimately broken relationships. When we start valuing what we want more than the people that, are, that we care about and live with. What can I get out of you over here? What can I get out of you over here? Okay, see you later. Done. They're painful words. They hurt. And that is far from what God's desire for us as his people. The Holy Spirit's showing us a different way to live in unity as he's speaking through Paul. You know, Brittany and I, when we were first married, we, we made the decision that we're not, we weren't ever going to let any issue become more important than our relationship. Like our marriage and our relationship would always be the most important thing, even when we maybe had some sort of thing that was trying to divide us. But the other person was always more important than whatever we were talking about. And I'd like to read for you a story of of a beautiful example of what we're talking about this morning of humility and selflessness. Has anybody heard of Amy Carmichael? Okay, a couple of you have. Yeah. And this is an article that I've taken from Ligonier.org. And and it's long, so stay with me here. I'm going to read it to you, but it's really powerful. Just act like you've got some popcorn, it's a bedtime story or something. Just don't fall asleep. <laughs> actually, I gotta tell you a story about falling asleep in church several years ago i <clears throat> I was working not overnights, I was working four on, four off, and you know working overnight, and I was having some health health issues at the same time, and I just had a stretch where I could not stay awake during the sermons. And so this went on for, you know, four or five six weeks. And finally we came to a week where we had we were having a pitch in after the service and I end up right behind JD in line while we're going through the line and I said, "Hey man, I got to confess, you know, I've I've been having a really hard time staying awake during the messages and here's why." And he looked over at me, you know how he does. He just kind of smiled real graciously. He's like, "I know." <laughs> <laughs> So it's one of those things, he said, I know who sleeps and who doesn't, so don't worry about it, so stay awake. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and read this story to you. This is about Amy Carmichael. It was March 1901. A seven-year-old Indian girl named Prina escaped a Hindu temple where she had been abandoned by her mother as a devotion to the gods. She was to serve as a temple prostitute for life. It wasn't the first time she had fled the temple. The first time, Prina had hoped her mother would rescue her. Sadly, her mother renounced her again, and the temple women punished Prina's desertion with hot irons to the hands. Perhaps that would move her mother to see her desperation and keep her. Her second time on the run, Prina wandered across a large body of water and came in the dark upon a church in the village of Penai Villa, Hopefully, this church would be different than the church she had been living in. Was her mother close? Would her mother keep her this time? Providentially, yes. The next day, she embraced and kissed her ama, which is mother in the language they spoke. But it wasn't her birth mother. It was a 34-year-old Irish woman. Her name was Amy Carmichael. By that time, Carmichael had been in India for six years. When she left Ireland for India in 1895, she would never see home again. She was determined to proclaim the gospel to unreached peoples. Having grown up in a godly Irish Presbyterian family, Carmichael loved Christ from an early age and had begun teaching the Bible to poor girls in Belfast. Her introduction to Hudson Taylor through her involvement with the Keswick Convention convention, heightened her resolve for soul winning and compelled her to missionary work, first in Japan and then in India. Her unexpected meeting with Prina years later, however, refashioned the way she would go about her missionary labors, from itinerancy to sedentation, so from traveling to staying in one place. Carmichael learned from Prina of the horrific underbelly of the Indian caste and Hindu cultic system, which in turn imposed an insurmountable burden on Carmichael to snatch as many children as possible from its snares. Carmichael's love for God, which had always fueled her zealous evangelistic efforts, was now notably channeled in a singular prayerful obsession with rescuing, preserving, educating, and discipling destitute children, especially temple children. Her brutally honest reports about the realities of life for children in such conditions weren't always welcomed by Christians at home. That's an amazing thing. Did you catch that? The Christians back home they didn't, want to, they didn't want to hear this. Like they were just so, I don't know, overtaken by it that they they kind of turned a blind eye to it, and so may we never do that. But Carmichael was convinced that it was necessary for them to hear it. Slowly she and her comrades began the unpleasant process of discovering the evil realities of trafficking. How could she continue traveling to teach and evangelize when so many children were in danger? Her calling, as she saw it, had fallen into her lap. The commitment to the children, which Amy came to by 1904, was not an alternative to her passion for all age groups to be brought to Christ. It was very much a part of it. With the help of her missionary companions, she began housing children at the Donover Fellowship, which would become the hallmark of her missionary work. By 1904, there were more than 30 in Amma's family at Donover. By 1907, more than 70. By 1913, more than 130. And by 1918, the family had enlarged to include a home for boys. Indeed, only God truly knows how many children Donover housed, taught, and quite literally saved from a life of misery. Life at Donover was characterized by love, laughter, and hard work, fun, and most importantly for Carmichael, a robust Christian education. God's two books, she says scripture and nature, were the foundation and the roof. Carmichael cared for the various needs of the body and of the soul. She was fervent in prayer and expected great things from the Lord. And she saw no shortage of needs fulfilled by extraordinary providences. In fact, she never asked for monetary support. Southern India in many ways still bears the mark of Carmichael in her work hundreds of abandoned babies and exploited children were rescued from temple prostitution converts were made churches were formed people were baptized all in large measure connected in some degree with amy carmichael's relentless labors and we're closing up here sadly amy suffered a fall in 1931 that her, that left her immobile and practically bedbound for the remaining 20 years of her extraordinary life in God's providence, however, her immobilization was probably the only way that she would have been able and willing to write her many books that are still beloved today. One such book offers her reflections on love in the Christian life. In it, she writes, and this is, this is the point of this whole thing. This about brought a tear to my eye when I read this. In it, she writes, If I have not compassion on my fellow servant even as my Lord had pity on me, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. If I have not compassion on my fellow servant, even as my Lord had pity on me, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. Amy understood deeply how the love of Christ animates a life of faith and obedience. Her life and ministry questions us. Do we love Christ enough to forsake earthly comforts? And we talked about that a couple weeks ago with the disciples. Further, Amy's life clearly turns the old adage upside down, that she was so heavenly-minded that she accomplished remarkable earthly good. So Amy Carmichael, that's her story, and thanks for bearing with me on that. So what an example of selfless love, of humility, of selflessness that she displayed in giving up her life to go care for the needs of others, of considering others better than herself. So not only do we live in unity with other believers in humility, but as citizens of heaven, we preach the true gospel. We are to fearlessly proclaim our faith. Verses 27, 28, it says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything By your opponents. So, what is the true gospel? I told you we were going to share that this morning. We're sinners. We're separated from God. There's nothing we can do to get back to God. We needed Him to reach down to us, and He did powerfully. He came to us through His Son Jesus Christ in the flesh. He took our sins with Him to the cross, taking our punishment. He died, He bodily rose again. You know, Jesus didn't just say, you know, I'm going to rise again, but it's just going to be spiritually. There'd be no way to, to confirm that, right? It'd be like, okay, well, I'll take your word for it. You know, we'll never be able to see it. But he rose bodily to be able to confirm what he was teaching and who he was. So he paid for our sin. He's conquered sin and death for us. And those who put their faith in Jesus will have their sin removed and be united to him forever. In his resurrection, amen? So Paul tells us not to be frightened in anything by our opponents. So why would he say that? Well, it's because the truth is with us. The truth is behind us. We need to understand that as Christians. You know, we don't have to cater to the people around us. We have the truth. Jesus said to Pilate, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. He also told his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so this morning, I'd just like to quickly share a few um, apologetics with you. If you're not familiar with what apologetics are, it's basically um, just a defense of the gospel. It's not like you're apologizing for something. It's not like, sorry, I took the last donut or, you know, something like that. That's on my mind because I've done that before at home and I had to say that. So these are just a few apologetics. I mean, we have so much sufficient evidence to be able to share the gospel with people. We really need to really need to educate ourselves. And so this one comes straight out of Scripture. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul writes, "For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received: that Christ was, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures; that He was buried; that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures." And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And here we go. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul says, he also appeared to me. Now notice what Paul said there. He said, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people, but then he gives us this detail most of whom are still alive. So why would he say that? What would be so important about him putting that in the text here? He's almost daring the people that are reading this to go check this out. He's saying, look, there's 500 other people, or almost 500 that are still alive that saw the resurrected Jesus. Go ask them if you don't believe me. You know, this is kind of like um, when I shared with the youth group last week uh, this analogy, okay, say you went to a, like a soccer match, after school through high school and um, say that somebody came off the bench that never played all year and they came out and they did this just unbelievable like flip kick you know a goal you know from 30 yards out and then you go to school the next day and you tell your friends about it and you're saying you wouldn't believe what I saw at this game last night like this kid came off the bench and like did this most amazing play like major league soccer and your friends might respond to you and say well... Okay, I don't know. I think you're kind of exaggerating that probably a little bit. But then you might respond and say, well, there was a hundred other people there. There were fans in the stands, grandparents, parents. There were coaches. There were teammates. officials were there. If you don't believe me, go and ask them what happened. And so that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying this undeniably happened. Also, we need to understand about the Gospels, and we're just going to hit on the Gospels real fast here, that they are actual accounts of what real people saw at a real time. That's what these are. And the world, for some reason, they don't want to acknowledge that just because I think they don't like what, it, what the implications for their life, that they're going to have to give their heart to this Lord or submit to him. So Matthew was one of the 12 who followed Jesus. Mark was a close companion of Peter, who was one of Jesus' inner circle. Luke, the beloved physician, as he's called, he wrote to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And John was one of Jesus' inner circle of disciples. So these are legitimate accounts of things that happened. In a real time, in a real place, from real people. Now, the scripture also tells us of prophecy after prophecy that's been fulfilled. I mean, there's, just, there's countless. And just to give you a few of them, only God could say what's going to happen before it actually happens with 100% accuracy. You know, we might say something like, well, the cult's going to win. But we may or may not be right, and we wouldn't be able to do that over 100, you know, however long stretch, like the whole season. But God talks about specific nations and peoples, what's going to happen with 100% accuracy. So a few examples. Daniel, by God's revelation, predicted the succession of four different kingdoms right in a row. From Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece to Rome. And within that, within the, the Greek kingdom, he predicted the rise of Alexander the Great. And the splitting of Alexander's kingdom into four different kingdoms amongst his generals. And you can read about that in Daniel 7, 8, and 11. It's amazing. Isaiah prophesied about the Persian king Cyrus 200 years before he was there. That's in Isaiah 44. Then we see Jesus telling his disciples that he's going to be killed and rise again in three days. And the empty tomb still speaks to that truth even today. So we have the truth on our side. We are to fearlessly preach the gospel side by side with each other. As believers, we stand tall for Christ. We lock arms together, not budging or wavering on the message the Lord's given us. We have the truth. So... These evidences are great, and they're important, but I think even the more powerful evidences we have are lives that God has changed, right? You know, we look at Benjamin and what he's doing now, the life that he had led of selfishness and crime and running from God, and now all of a sudden, he's on fire. Like, God's completely turned his life around. He's a new creation, right? And so he's on mission now to go to go share this gospel with others in prison. I just also read another testimony from a brother in the community, and I think, I think you'll know who I'm talking about. But he shared on social media that he's been 39 years sober, as of October 1st, I think it was, because of the power of Christ in his life. I personally had a friend uh, many years ago who I'd witnessed to. Uh, this was probably 10, 12 years ago. Um, I, I witnessed to him actually through Facebook, so maybe there is something slightly good about Facebook. I don't know. Um, but anyway, I shared with him and never heard back from him for two years after that. He kind of gave me a quick reply. Okay, yeah, whatever, thanks. Two years went by, and all of a sudden I get a message from him two years later, and it's like this book he's written. I'm like, whoa, something, something's up here. Something happened. So he, long story short, he told me that his, his life and his wife's lives, his wife, their lives together were in shambles, and their marriage was in shambles. And he said, he said, I never forgot what you said, even two years ago. And so they founded a Bible-believing church that gave their lives to the Lord, their lives were restored, and now they're still married, follow their kids around with sports all the time. They post about their anniversary every year. It's awesome to see what the Lord does. And I'm going to tell you, it wasn't because of what I said. I know that he claimed that, but if you could go back and look what I wrote to him, it was the most awkward witnessing and event you would ever see in your life. I'd be embarrassed to probably tell you what I said. So it wasn't me. It was the power of God doing the work in their lives. So this is the message we can take with us to the Harvest Festival What's the purpose of the Harvest Festival? It's amazing how the Lord works these things out, Brad. You just talked about that. And how we're to show the love and the unity that we have in Christ to the world around us. We're to go and make a big deal about Jesus. He is why we're there, to share him with other people. Of course, the games are fun. It's a great time. The food's good. But man, we're there to show them the love of Christ. And enjoy fall, which I'm sorry to those of you that don't like fall. Some of you don't like fall very much, but I'm going to put my sweatshirt on and uh, smell in the pumpkin pumpkin spice as long as I can. We want these people to have the hope that we have, like we talked about. We want their lives to be changed from aimless and hopeless to now having a mission and a hope of doing service for the Lord and being with him forever. So with the truth behind us, we are to fearlessly proclaim the gospel side by side with each other. And as we move into verses uh, 29 and 30 here, and the last hour of the sermon, (laughs) just kidding, you know that's not true. These verses aren't going to get as much attention as they probably should. But we see all through scripture when we take a stand for God and his son Jesus Christ, that suffering in some way or fashion is inevitably going to come in some manner or some degree. Friends or family might distance themselves. You know, you might lose friends. Um, the world's not going to understand the way we do life. There might be a separation there, or there probably should be a separation there. Um, and at some point, believers may get thrown in prison here in America, and you could probably argue that that has already happened. But the amazing thing is is that we have a Savior from heaven who came down to us and endured all these things. He didn't keep himself separate from this. He could have looked down from on high and just said, boy, I really pity those people. He didn't do that. He came down to us and breathed in the dust, dealt with sickness, rejection, like we do, and even more than we do, as he was willing to go to the cross for us. So as we close this morning... One of the most beautiful ways the Lord gave us to display our unity as brothers and sisters is to remember him in communion. The Lord Jesus displayed all of these things that we talked about this morning to the max. The king of heaven took on flesh and lived on the earth as a man. He lived in full submission to the father. He humbled himself to the point of bearing the cross. He was the suffering servant, our great example. And why? Why would he do that? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And in verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And in Romans chapter 5, God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we take communion together this morning. It's a real privilege. We invite any believer, anyone who's put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to participate with us. And if you haven't or you're not sure, just hang tight. Just, just relax there for a minute. So communion is a time of remembrance where we remember Jesus, his broken body and his shed blood for us. Scripture tells us we're to examine ourselves when we come take communion to see how we can live a holier life with his help. Check this out. This is actually a proclamation, too, when we take communion. We're actually proclaiming the Lord's death. We announce it to the world when we take communion. And so as we sing our last song or songs, is it one, Dan, or two? Songs. Okay, as we sing our last song this morning, uh, feel free to uh, take communion at any point during those. Um, we've got two in the back and then one up here. Um, and I'm going to close out here with uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 28. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes so let's share in that together and let's pray Heavenly Father, what a, what a true privilege it is to participate um, in this opportunity you give us to come together and, and remember your son's broken body and his shed blood. What a privilege it is. And so thank you, Lord. Thank you for the salvation that you've bought for us at such extreme price. You bought it for us with your blood. And so, Lord, we remember that this morning. And we thank you for your great sacrifice, and we thank you for the power of the hope we have in your resurrection, and that we'll be raised with you too, Lord. And so, Lord, please come. Please, please bring everyone, draw everyone who will come to you, Lord, and, and please come, I pray. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.